Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I am absolutely thrilled for our guest today. Uh, we're going to get right into it. He's Peter Riegert. Peter has been acting, writing, directing, and producing for over 50 years. His films include Animal House, a film I've seen a million times, Local Hero, Crossing Delancey, Chilly Scenes of Winter, Cold-Blooded, Oscar, Passed Away, The Mask, Traffic, White Irish Drinkers, American Pastoral. Uh, he's also done a lot on TV. His credits include Succession, The Sopranos, Damages, Law & Order, SVU, The Good Wife, One Tree Hill, Show Me a Hero, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Disjointed. His directorial debut landed him an Academy Award nomination for the short film By Courier. Peter then wrote, directed, and starred in his first feature film, King of the Corner. On Broadway, Peter starred in David Mamet's The Old Neighborhood, An American Daughter, The Nerd, and Dance With Me. And off-Broadway, he's done Sexual Perversity in Chicago, The Birthday Party, Mountain Language, and Isn't It Romantic. Peter, welcome into the back room. Thanks. I didn't think I'd ever get here. I got to tell you, this is one of the biggest thrills of my life as someone who has probably seen Animal House about 700 times. That was my Bible. How old were you? Uh, I was like 19. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, it was absolutely perfect. If I could crawl into the screen and live at the frat house, I would have. Were um, you in school at that time? I was. And the reason I love the movie so much is because I grew up in Queens and I went to a city school. So I didn't go away. Right. I didn't live in a frat. I didn't have that experience. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, I think I made the wrong decision. <laughs> hey, I had 12-year-olds come up to me and say, God, I can't wait to get to college. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to explain to them this is not exactly college. Yeah, and it's probably not the reason you want to go to college either. If you're 12, it is. <laughs> so first thing I want to ask you, because this is just a, what I like to call the 325-pound gorilla in the room, which has nothing to do with your career or acting, but <laughs> Donald Trump was indicted last night. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. I think it's really important that he's indicted. And there's probably two more indictments coming, I think. Mm -hmm. Because if we didn't, then the lie we've been telling ourselves all along would be even more exposed. You know, people are put in jail every day who do things less than what he did. Well, I was going to say, like, the last <clears throat> eight years or so, <clears throat> we've been living under so many, can you believe, right? Can you believe he became president? Can you believe we're now dealing with an ex-president who has been impeached twice, indicted twice, likely going to be indicted again? And can you believe he's the Republican frontrunner? Hopefully the last can you believe we're not going to end up saying is, can you believe he's president again? It's possible. Politics is theater to me. I think that's why show business and politics find each other so attractive. But it's like when I listen to talking heads about sports, I wish I had the money to bet against every one of their predictions because <laughs> they're always wrong. At least 80% of the time, I'd be filthy rich. Well, the same thing is true of politics. And Trump. But he understood something that others didn't. And one of the things that I noticed was he's, to his audience, he's like a, a right-wing Lenny Bruce. He's a tumbler, as Mel Brooks used to call him. And people find people who have energy and excitement and daring, attractive. And look at who he had to run against. I don't mean Hillary Clinton. I mean, 16 of the weirdest people who, who took themselves so seriously, he could mock them. So I have no idea what's coming. 
the famous screenwriter and novelist, William Goldman, mm -hmm. he had a very famous quote. And that quote was, with regards to show business, nobody knows anything. And my fear is that we're going to, you know, here we are again. Yeah. Well, what we've learned over the last eight years is that <clears throat> conventional wisdom has been out the window. So anything. I think it's always been happen. out the window. But I, more so with him. He and the Republican Party and the Republican electorate just truly defy any conventional wisdom. Yeah, but the left, you know, a lot more left than center, but we're all part of the problem. I mean, Bernie Sanders, 20 to 25% of his supporters, 20 to 25% didn't vote, voted third party, or voted for Trump. So who's responsible? Don't get me started oh, on, yeah. on Bernie. Well, you've got this writer from Harvard who's running as a third-party candidate, Cornell West. This is a binary fight now. This is none of this crap about, you know, third party. It ain't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And if it does, that's how he'll win. So you're a Hudson Valley guy? Well, I am now. We moved up here uh, in, uh, oh, about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. What and, brought you here? Uh... My wife and I was just starting to spend a lot of time together, and we just needed more room to roam, uh -huh. or roam to room. But uh, that sounds like a whole conversation. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I found this apartment on uh, West End Avenue and ninety on Seventy First Street. It was a penthouse. I had a four hundred eighty square foot terrace. It was awesome, mm. and we had a great time there. But two people. It wasn't for two people. Really. Mm -hmm. So then we. Uh, uh, we both like, uh, she writes crime fiction. Her, her uh, authorship name is Reed, R-E-A-D. Like to read a book. Cornelia Reed, and uh, so she stays up late, and I stay up late, and every once in a while she'd show me some property, and I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for a crib in the country, but we have a lot of pals up here. So one day she said, what about this? And my eyes lit up. We saw it the next day, and we bid on it and got it. Moved in November 17th or 18th of uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. And you're here full-time or part-time? No, full-time. I sold New York City. I sold the apartment November of 2019. So very lucky. Three months before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is a good time. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've been coming up here for a long time. Friends have been up here for 20 years. And... Uh, it's it's a great part of the country, Hudson Valley. I've been in the city for, <clears throat> for almost 40 years now, and I have a place up here, and I, I've been migrating more and more yeah. up here. I find as I get older, that's w w when I want, really wanted to start spending more time up here because like, you start becoming that guy who wants to pull weeds out of the ground. All the shit you never could do in the city, all of a sudden you find yourself like, I have a garage. Yeah, no, no, like, it's uh, thrilling. To very bizarre. Door goes up and down. I can drive in and when we moved in, it was November, like I said. And the next day, there was no furniture. We slept on a mattress, and I'm sure I got popped awake around eight or eight thirty, which is early for me. Um, and I looked outside, and indeed, we had bought this place because we closed the night before, and it was dark. So some friends came over and brought some caviar and champagne and everything. Still didn't know what we had. I looked outside and I went, "Oh my God, I'm the, I'm the super." And my buddy of mine named Greg Quinn, who lives up here, said, "And he's a farmer. Well, he can do everything. He's a writer. He's a farmer. 
Anyway, he said, no, 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 you're not, you're not the super. You're the contractor. You couldn't fix a toilet if your life depended upon it. I said, well, my wife probably could. But learning how to hire all these people to, who are the various craftspeople, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, it's really interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but the concept of owning land, even if you have a half acre, it's just like that old Woody Allen oh, yeah. stand-up routine where he says, my father left me a little patch of land, and he opens up his jacket, and he it's has a like little a little patch. <laughs> little patch. Yeah. I go on my deck, and I'm like, my land. And well, it's, it's a country road. It's very quiet. And, um, you know, our neighbors have been great. Uh, my neighbor, Judy Sanford, was the first person to welcome us, and she brought us some flowers, and we chatted, and she said, I've taught all of the kids in this area math for the last 40 years. So you tell me who you need, and I've probably taught them. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's peel back the onion a little okay. bit. Childhood. Did you always know you were going to be an actor? Did you always want to be an actor? When I look back, uh, I think I was always aware of how people related to me. Uh, I know my parents, I was born in 47. So my dad was, what's my dad? He was 32, my mom was 27, it was after the war. And uh, we lived in the Bronx. And uh, around three, four, five, they'd take me to the circus or they'd take me to a rodeo and then, or a baseball game which to a kid is like the theater. And um, we moved out in, in 1954 to a town called Ardsley. It was actually Hartsdale, but I went to the Ardsley school system. And I just was lucky that they were taking me to everything culturally in interesting. And I never thought about it one way or the other. I don't remember thinking I can do that or is that a profession? I just love going to the movies, and I would imitate Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx or anybody, because we had something back in those days called Million Dollar Movie, mm -hmm. which they'd show nine times a week. Mm -hmm. Channel 11, right? Probably. Mm -hmm. And it was like your own uh, film, film school. Now, I wasn't studying the cameras. I was studying and imitating what these people were doing, because it was making me laugh. And I had a pretty good sense of humor. So I would say the answer is I don't remember thinking about doing that. I did a play in high school. I did a play in college. Um, but nobody ever said, you should do this. My folks, their feeling was if you find something you love to do, then you're the luckiest person. But what that was, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I would say... I made the decision to do this. Uh, I always always call it an epiphany. I was working at a club on 56th and 6th Avenue called Downstairs at the Upstairs. If you play it upstairs, it was upstairs at the downstairs. <laughs> and I was serving drinks, and I think I made 70 bucks that night. In 1970, $70 cash, that's, that was that's a lot nice. of money. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been teaching in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. I was a, a quasi-social worker for the University Settlement House on Eldridge and Rivington on the Lower East Side. 
And uh, this particular New Year's Eve, I woke up the next day and I was at my folks' house. They lived on 75th and West End. And I don't know why I didn't go back to the village, but it was three in the morning or four in the morning. And I used to live on Horatio Street. I don't even, you know, the trains would have been running. The subways would have been running very regularly. So I slept up to where my folks were and I got up the next day. And I literally, as my eyes, you know, as the light broke my eyes, the thought, I'm going to be an actor, hit at the same time. So it wasn't like I was hearing a voice. It was a thought sewn to the, the magic of waking up. And I just followed that, that sound and that voice. Called a couple of friends of mine who I knew in college. How do, they, how do you do this? And they said, how do you do what? And I said, well, I'm going to be an actor, so what do I need to do? Uh, they said, I think it was Ron Silver, the actor Ronnie Silver. We went to college together. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. He said, well, you need a, a picture and a resume, so you should get that. And I said, of course, what's a picture? He said, it's called a headshot. I said, oh, where do you get one of these? He said, find someone with a camera who lives <laughs> on your street. It doesn't matter. Just get a shot right. of your head. I said, okay, my head. And what about the resume? He said, well, on the resume, you put down all the things that you've done so that they can see your body of work. I said, Ronnie, I don't have a body of work. So everybody was telling me, just lie. And Ronnie said the same, make it up, invent your biography. I said, what do you mean? He said, invent a small theater company in a small town and give yourself the part of Laertes. And then just keep inventing these so it looks like you've been really so busy. So creating your resume was technically your first acting gig. In a way. But <clears throat> my crazy mind, eventually I'm thinking, well, if everybody's lying, <laughs> what if I tell the truth? So I had on my resume my name and maybe my phone. And then all the way down at the bottom, worked for Bella Abzug as an aide-de-camp, which I did in 1970. And the rest of it was blank. And my thinking was, it's going to look so ludicrous, it'll provoke a conversation. Mm -hmm. And if I get a job, it's going to be out of charm, not out of skill. I mean, I thought I had it's kind some of genius, skill. actually. Well, it turned out to be very helpful because that was the. Uh, I think I got an off off Broadway job in about six weeks. So by the middle of February, I was got a phone call. And I, it was a theater called the Omni Theater on 18th Street. Mm -hmm. I don't think it seated 25 people. And uh, I, they said, would you like the job? I said, yeah, remind me which job it is. And they told me, and I showed up. And, you know, off-Broadway, off you have very little time to rehearse. But it was exciting. It was, here I am in show business. And uh, I said, why did you, what, what is it about me that made you want to hire me? He said, well, we were laughing so hard during your interview because of that ludicrous uh, resume you had and then the stories you were telling. So my instinct was right. Because mm -hmm. my friend Ronnie had said, it doesn't matter what you put on the back of that resume, they're not going to believe it anyway. And I said, well, why do people do that? Well, that it, it's been handed down for generations that you make this crap up and None of them know who you are. They've never seen you before. They're not going to look at it and go, oh, what an impressive resume. 
They're going to go, oh, another lying kid from mm -hmm. wherever. Well, they probably just, they're calling you in on the look anyway, right? It's just the, the picture. That's what's. There's so many, there's no, there's, you can't parse why. It's always, to me, it's always interesting later when I get the job and I don't ask until after the job is over, why me? Why, you know, you have the pick of anybody. And those answers are always interesting. So it was your impressive body of work. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? I lost so many jobs. So I want to ask you this question as a, a man of modest height myself. I saw, maybe it was IMDB or somewhere, your height was listed as five foot seven and three quarters. So I'm wondering, is, did that come from you? Came from age. I think I was five eight. <laughs> but I wasn't being honest. You can tell. I don't tell the truth about my So it's just a work in pro. You're going to keep updating it as you. Yeah, you get you'll older. be able to tell how old I am. Where are you think you're going to land? In terms of height? Yeah. Like the shorter, the longer. <laughs> it, it, if I'm really short, it means I've been hanging around a long time. It resonated with me on, a, on another level. I don't know if you knew the actor, filmmaker, Adrian Shelley. From, Very much. Okay. She was my I, wife. Uh, and on her resume, she put for her height, six foot one minus exactly one foot. Excellent. That's the same approach that I had. Yeah. You've got to get their attention. Right. And not every producer, not every director, not every anybody in any discipline is perfect. But I'm looking for the person who's going to connect and is going to be interested in having this experiment in terms right. of hiring me. But I've directed also. That's what you're always looking for. So did you know Adrienne? Did you ever work with her? No, no. I just knew of her story, right. which was uh, it was near where I used to right. live. So I it was just heartbreaking yeah. to me, and obviously I feel terrible for you, but I thought how exciting it was, how the business was changing. Like when I've worked with a lot of women directors, I get, used to get questioned all the time, what's the difference? And I'd say, there is no difference. They're just different. If you, you could line up 10 men directors, they'd be different. But a, a woman, a, an African-American person, somebody from China. I've worked in 12 countries. Everybody in the movie business acts the same, just with a different accent. I mean, they speak a different language. Right. So I think it's an exciting time, and she was, you know, part of that change that was coming. That couldn't have been easy. Yeah. Animal House, that was your, your big break? Was uh, it was like your first or second as, project? As, it was my first national job. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's you have to have endless numbers of breaks to keep going. Um, you don't, at least in my experience, you just don't get a job that gets that much attention. They have to remember Hollywood was not making movies about younger people really. It was just starting to change in the '60s and '70s. But once Animal House came out, there were no pictures. You know, I found. Two movies that came out in July or June, July of 78. Maybe I found two movies. I did a movie with Joan Nicklin Silver called Chilly Scenes of Winter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was starting, I was doing plays in the city. Um, so I felt very busy. But if I would have done Animal House today, I'm sure I'd have a lot of offers. There just wasn't that many. I mean, the one that stood out was uh, uh, 1941. I think that was the next film that Tim Madison made, Belushi made. Mm -hmm. 
a um, couple other people from the film. Wouldn't it be great to have an animal house today? Like, you mean to what, be a tab- where made? They? Yeah, like, where are you all, all you guys? What are you doing? Oh, oh. A reunion, uh, a frat house reunion. I, do, I think the Genius. way we look at it is uh, we feel good that there wasn't a sequel. Right. You, to do That's a, usually the case. It is, but I mean, I'm trying to think. It, it You know, the, the second Godfather was a sequel. Right. Uh, I didn't care much about the third sequel, but- right. Name another now. Yeah. Everybody says Godfather, but then they can't. Yeah, no, there aren't that many, but <clears throat> show business doesn't look at it like it's at uh, how aesthetically brilliant will it be. I mean, there were six Porkies and six police academies. Right. And, you know, it's just, they just, to them, it's a money making situation. Right. So. But all, the, all of the uh, Harry Potter stuff is. Yeah. Ooh, I think the difference. This is probably a wacky idea, but in my mind, it's not. But <clears throat> I definitely see it. But I think a key difference with a lot of sequels is that they're made so quickly after the first one. And if the first one is great, yeah. it tends to destroy the brand. But like doing a 2023 or 24 version of Animal House where you guys get together for like a reunion weekend, except for unfortunately Belushi, which is tragic, but that could. That's such a unique twist on the story. That... But it's the story you'd have to find. Yeah. Well, it would get boring after a few minutes to watch us collectively asking how we are. But Toga party with 70-year-olds? It would be uh, fun and exciting. I, there was a... Um... Oh, golly, I'm forgetting his name right now. It'll come to me. He wrote a play in the 70s that took place in the future. And it was two old guys in Florida from the 60s. Talking about well, you know, their, their memories of their favorite songs. It was pretty funny. John Ford Noonan, mm-hmm. he was the writer. And uh, Mel Brooks, to me, has been doing that for years, you know, the 2000 year old man. Right. But I worked with Martin Mull on a TV show called Dads. One of the funniest guys oh, ever. Oh, my God. Brilliant. And uh, he just, we would just sit off to the side laughing and looking at these young whippersnappers and just carrying on. What was that movie he did about California? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's based on Mill Valley. Yeah, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my yeah. life. He did one about about white people, about being white, something like that. He's very funny. Anyway, he said, um, um, you know, sitting, we were sitting around complaining about various ailments, and he said, you know what this is that we're doing? I said, no. He said, it's an organ recital. And he said one time we we did I'd never done a television series for camera, so uh, you have to eventually do it in front of an audience, and it's it's people say it's like doing a one act play, but it's not because you you can cut and you can repeat. It's only similar because it's about twenty five minutes long. So, but uh, nobody knows who these series are, so they pr- pick people up and. You know, different supermarkets and on the street and whatever. Anyway, so uh, there's probably 250 people. And uh, I'd never experienced this before, but it was really exciting. But right before we went on, um, see, I'll probably get this wrong. Martin said, uh, well, I'm screwing it up. What, What would you call our front row? 
he said something along the lines of 32 eyes and two teeth. So 16 people. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, he was great. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that tangent came from, but. <clears throat> so I, I don't know about an Animal House sequel. Mm -hmm. It would have to be in the writing. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy thing to yeah, do. I'm going to get cracking on that later. There you go. What made, what was the magic of Animal House? What made it like an instant classic? Uh, I would say the three writers, Chris Miller, Doug Kenny, and Harold Ramis, just had brilliant senses of humor. And I don't think they'd ever written a screenplay before, so they didn't know what they couldn't do. So they wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and wrote it, and it had a lot of great ideas. Once John Landis was hired, he had an excellent understanding of where the story was in this enormous script. Um, and they got it down to you know, maybe 130 pages, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I would say the real trick was in the casting. And they we shot it on a campus. So all the extras were really students because most of us were old. I was almost 30, or maybe I was 30. And Belushi was 27, Tim was 29, Karen was 26. So to make us look lower, younger, they hired a lot of people who really were young. But I would say the secret is um, it's got to be the script and, and the casting. The casting illuminated the script. You, can, you, can, you can't make a bad script. You can make a bad script better, but you can screw up a really good script. And the rest of it, who knows? Also, it was set in an, a time... Not the not in 1977. It was set, set in 1962, <clears throat> which is a an innocent period. Right. It's it's why it's why um, American Graffiti is set in 1962. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, um, just a sealed past that had a certain innocent to innocence to it, and then it was. I don't know. It just captured. It was my generation wearing clothes and haircuts from, from that era. Right. I didn't go to, I wasn't in a fraternity. And even Landis says that he wasn't making a movie about fraternities. He was making a movie about fraternalism. So the Animal House was this democratic organization that basically needed the dues. You didn't, you didn't compete. There wasn't any, um, it was a little hazing, but it wasn't like, you know, the other fraternities. So it was an anti-authoritarian story in which when you're young, people like to project onto a story like that. Oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's a big difference between a fraternity and the Proud Boys, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, D-Day might have been in the Proud, Proud I, Boys. No, we are, we're pretty, <laughs> we believe that, that the Animal House had a consistent moral code. <laughs> and liberal and, slant. <laughs> well, it wasn't that so much. It's that we ha to be able to laugh at yourself, I think, is what helped that movie. Because mm -hmm. they were always laughing at themselves. you know. And the it's got some of the most memorable lines I've ever had to utter, one after another, not just me. So I would say, this is a long answer to the question, you can't, you can't, assure word of mouth and word of mouth is what makes a hit. 
Uh, speaking of lines, um, and I say this as a Jew sitting with two fellow Jews, uh, one of my favorite lines was, I just checked with the guys at the Jewish house. Yeah. <laughs> and they said that every one of our answers on the psych test are all wrong. <laughs> well, that's a that's a that's a, a perfect example of a line that rings true in the culture. I mean, a lot of the kids who first went were college kids. I mean, that was their natural audience. Mm -hmm. I think the first the first uh, test with an audience was in Denver, and that was Denver of '77, I believe, and. Um, they had let people. There was a convention of, of uh, fraternities and sororities in town. So that that's who they brought to the film, and the noise. Uh, uh, what I remember is is uh, John Landis playing me the tape that he had made, of that audience. Now, you couldn't hear anything. Occasionally you'd hear the music. He said, "My God, what is that?" He said, "That's the sound of a cash register." <laughs> You mentioned the cast before, and it was a brilliant cast. And I could talk to you probably for three hours about the cast alone, but this is like your first big job. You're working with Donald Sutherland, who at the time was a huge, successful, highly acclaimed actor. You're working with John Belushi, who was an instant legend, right? Tom Hulst, Kevin Bacon, Karen Allen, who to this day I still say in that movie is one of the most beautiful women oh, I have yeah. ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. And for you as, you know, a 30-year-old kid getting your first big break, like working on that film, it was probably just a magical experience, was it not? Well, I always tell people, did you have a good time at the movie? And they go, oh, my God, it was so funny. I said, the movie's about an hour and 40 minutes. They go, yeah, my God, it was hysterical. He said, okay, that's what we did every day for seven weeks. It was mm -hmm. like the movie. They just had to turn the camera on. What was it like working with Belushi? I knew John before he became John Belushi. He was another actor. I met him through a friend of mine in 1973, near where I used to live, outside the corner of Bistro, down the village. And uh, he was just another actor looking for work. Uh, I saw him perform uh, with in the show Lemmings. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he was obviously talented. Um, so was he always on? Not really. I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. um, if he were in a group, he probably would tend to be on. Mm -hmm. But his ballast was his wife, Judy. Right. And Landis did a really interesting thing. We, we were supposed to be in Eugene, Oregon for a week to you know, prepare. And all we did was get together and have some laughs. But in the beginning, he had a dinner. And it and was all the guys in the animal house None of us had had our hair cut yet to be in the era. So people had beards and long hair. And we were kind of, it was like gunfight at the OK Corral. You could see actors going, oh, you're playing that part and you're playing OK. And it, everyone was fearless. There's nobody there who said, oh, my God, I don't. I mean, maybe they did. It was Karen's first film. It was Jamie Widow's first film. About five people was their first film. Kevin Bacon's first film. And it was my first feature, but I'd been going to movies forever and thinking about doing this. Right. John had a dinner. Landis had a dinner. Same. And we, we all kind of fell in love with each other. We recognized who's going to be playing each character. And um, so that was my experience with John. And Saturday Night Live had been on for 
two and a half years, maybe, 75, and we shot it in 77. So we were all thrilled to have John there because mm-hmm. we loved the show and everything. Um, and Donald Sutherland was indeed a big star. And uh, what I remember was a scene where me and Tom Hulse and Karen Allen are getting stoned with the professor, played by Donald Sutherland. You know, the, you have to draw the curtains that shows you the difference in and the time. put a towel underneath the... <laughs> Underneath the door. Anyway, nobody had intro. It, it was uh, Sutherland was sitting on the couch opposite me, and it was me, and Karen, and Tommy Hulse, Tom Hulse, and he's sitting there. No one said hello. He's not introducing himself, and I'm thinking, this is okay. It's no big deal. He's an actor. If you're an actor, it's not a problem. He's getting paid. You're getting paid. Don't worry about. It. Oh my God! It's so exciting <laughs> to meet you. I can't, you know, like that. So that was my first experience with a big name. But mm-hmm. you can only be in awe for about five minutes, and then the camera's rolling, and you're going to do your best. So I was, I'm. If anything, it made me feel like I, I could be here mm-hmm. because he was there. When you got the script and you you read the character of Boone, was it like, oh my God, this movie's fucking amazing, or? You don't you don't see it as a movie. At least I don't. I saw it. I just it was just the material. Mm-hmm. I literally fell out of bed when the horse died. When they <laughs> shot the horse, and you know, I was on the floor. Flounder. Yeah, and I and I think I have a pretty good eye for recognizing what's funny, and I thought this was indeed very funny. And um, did you see Boone as the soul of the story, in a way? Well, any actor should see any part as the soul <laughs> of the story, and they'll edit out what the truth is. But I, I thought what interested me, and I asked Chris Miller of this, I said, is, does Boone get his nickname, because his name is Donald Schoenstein, I said, did he get his nickname Boone because he loved black culture? And he said, yeah. So it's not like a Boone companion. Mm-hmm. It's a real pejorative uh, that black people were called. And that's why I was given, the character was given that name. Most people don't know that. But I, I'm always looking for the extra bit of knowledge that enhances. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any discipline in, in terms of a particular vocabulary. I just started acting. But something like that gave me a lot of energy to think differently mm-hmm. and um that's what they were that's what the fraternity represented to me was a bunch of people who challenged the status quo right and i think that's what made it attractive <clears throat> well the, the scene in the black club is one of my favorites my man otis, <laughs> otis my man, my man. <laughs> well and everything shuts down <laughs> well that's that's I, it's just so revealing that he thinks because he could bring him into his fraternity band, right. that they're great buddies. Right. But that's what I mean by writing scenes in which the characters willfully and and uh, distractedly get to make fun of themselves, which mm-hmm. is really amazing. And one of the things about the, the movie is like a lot of stuff from back in the day, whether it's movies or TV shows or stand-up comics, is right. like when you watch the film today, you start to like, Make a list of, oh, my God, you couldn't do that today. You can't do that today. Oh, I'm sure it's... Like, in the club, when he says, what what do you... Says to one of the girls, what are you majoring in? 
she goes, primitive cultures. And then you see a shot of the black dudes, and it's like, oh. I can only speak for myself. It was very self-consciously making fun of these people. And the, the, the Black Roadhouse was another fraternity, if you think of mm -hmm. it that way. And, and there was no presence in most movies when I was starting out where it wasn't anything but white people. Right. You know, it's changed in so many ways. But that fraternity, it, it was this comment on the naivete of the white people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, but audiences take from it what they will. I'm not telling the audience how to think. But that's what my sense was, that this was revealing a free culture, not free completely in, in the public, but in this bar, these people knew who they were. And these crazy college kids, that was their problem. They didn't have a clue who they were. And for Boone, he actually loved this 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 culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, but yeah, there's plenty of things that and I don't know what it says about what we got away with as much as where are we? No, it's right different now. times then and yeah. it's different times now yeah. and it's not like all of the stuff from then was bad, and today everything is great and PC, and it's like some—it's a little overboard today, in my opinion. Well, I, I especially in art and comedy. Yeah, I would say it would—that would be an interesting conversation with younger people seeing that movie, because we all know what the experience was when it came out. But that's how life changes, and uh, I—I I haven't seen it in a long time. But I certainly was not unaware that it, you know, it ha had its challenges. Mm -hmm. But it, that's what it's supposed to do, mm -hmm. a comedy. Anything good is supposed to offend in a certain way. I don't mean in a vicious way. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, what was Lenny Reifenstahl's movie? Uh, um, shit. Where you know Hitler descends from a plane, not from an elevator, and takes over the world. Right. Um, I'm sorry, audience. I'm forgetting the name of the movie, but <clears throat> it's not a documentary. Right. Uh, so, you know, I've had people be offended by different things, and that's their prerogative. I would never correct an audience yeah. member and say, "Well, I mean, like at the at the end of the film <clears throat> when Belushi grabs the blonde and throws her in the back of the car and drives off, like." If I was watching that with my 19-year-old daughter today, she'd be like, that, "You what? Like, yeah. me too? Yeah. Like, you know, but it's comedy, you know? And then you see them riding off into the sunset together and everything's great. It's she like, becomes the senator's wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, the end credits are, are absolutely yeah. amazing and yeah. br brilliant. But was there a lot of ad-libbing in that film? Uh, I think Landis encouraged us for to have ideas. And then, uh, I mean, the trick of, of making a movie or a play for that matter, is to make it look like you're improvising. I mean, right. it's like this conversation. I didn't learn my lines. I just came here to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I see the work that I do in movies or television. So there's an element of it. But, you know, like like Belushi was given a ballet of eating. Uh, I don't know how they choreographed it in terms of the right, right before the food fight. Mm -hmm. But how he did it and what they placed out there, and of course you can change angles and things like that, 
So to a degree, it's improvised a bit. Right. Um, what about the toga party scene? Was And one of the questions I wanted to ask, and I'm kind of hoping secretly the answer is yes, but was anybody really shit-faced during that scene? I don't remember. I don't think so. It's very hard to work if you're stoned or drunk. But it's also very hard to watch that scene and go, God, these people did this sober? Well, the trick is to make it... Acting, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The scene where we're standing next to the jukebox and banging into each other and singing Louie Louie. <laughs> In a way, it's, got, it's, it's improvised. You know, the, here's the scene. This is what we're going to be doing. And the body language, you mm-hmm. know, John's banging his head into my shoulder, and you know, it's it's got a sense of improv to it, rather than just delivering lines. That's my sense of of when work is good. Mm-hmm. And Belushi, mm-hmm. he, if, when he says the word sh- shit, it's like shit. shit. Yeah, there's a T at the end. And he does that a few t- like so. I, I one would assume that that wasn't written into the script. That that's just a that's Belushi. John. That's yeah. John. Yeah, and that's a. So to your point, it's just a lot of stuff like that. that yeah, the, each I, actor might have brought to the. I think so. You make a meal of of what you've got, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I've tried to do. You know, it's it's not just a line, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's why it's well cast. You're casting actors, who's delivery of their lines is memorable um and i can't remember i mean john said john landis um said had asked us to all come up with bits whatever we wanted to do because he needed you know we wanted to see what he had and you know uh, jamie widows could juggle um, um bruce mcgill could play his, you know, his uh, under his chin like an <laughs> instrument, and everybody could do something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, for I know for me, I saw what the other actors were doing, and I thought, well, I've got to do the opposite, which is nothing. So that I was going to try and find the lower register, mm-hmm. but I had these great lines, and you know, I just it all depends on your delivery. But the response to, do you mind if we dance with your dates? Why, no, <laughs> not at all. Go right ahead. I mean, I was, I was sitting on gold. Mm-hmm. And it was how, how I was going to deliver the line. But I don't remember practicing, saying it a certain way. Mm-hmm. The actor that I was um, acting against was uh, uh, an actor who'd been going to University of Oregon. I don't know if he's on the basketball team, but he was huge. And he'd never worked in front of a camera before, so he was very nervous. And they had to, they they wanted him to look at my, like if this, if the camera is shooting me like this, they wanted me, they wanted him to look at this eye, the eye closest to the camera, and he couldn't look at me. He was very intimidated by the scene. So they literally moved the camera, then he was able to look at me. It was fascinating. Mm. But I, I would say, uh, it's the script first. Mm-hmm. What are the lines? And I try and find wherever the hidden sounds are. Uh, I write out my dialogue by hand. That's how I learn. And by doing that, I can see patterns that I wouldn't necessarily pick up. And, you know, the, the sound, it's, it's like what a writer does. A writer looks for repetitive sounds. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing with the T at the end of, you know, holy shit, 
Right. But there's like a pause. Now, where did John get that from? He's probably heard it his whole life. But that was, uh, every, everybody contributed that way, I thought, to mm-hmm. the film. One of my favorite scenes, which <clears throat> is, falls under the category of, hmm, can you do that one today? It was the beginning at the frat party, and uh, they're brought into the room with the Muslim, the Jew, the blind guy. Like It's so funny. Because the concept of that is like, this is the loser section, right, right? Right, And it's so obvious what's happening. But then like- But li- it, look at which fraternity it was. It was the, you know, the, the stormtrooper. Right, you know, right. That, that represented the worst of fraternities mm-hmm. in which they, you know, people who have any physical disability or different color or different anything are huddled off to a corner. Mm-hmm. So in, a, in its way, it was making this, brilliant observation about, uh, you know, I, I think who somebody calls them the Hitler youth, right. you know, <laughs> and it's, it's this match constantly. So, and there's such parallels to today too. I mean, oh, you could yeah. say, wow, that is speaking directly to that mentality today. Those two groups exist today in almost the same exact, they're playing the same roles. One is the oppressor and the others are the victims. But again, from a artistic standpoint, that whole like PC thing, like, can you present today that the guy in the turban and the, the Jew and the blind guy are, are quote unquote, the losers? Like, can you even suggest that? I think you could. I think, yeah. I think if I you construct so. your story collect, uh, correctly, then the audience will be in on the joke. Right. If you're making fun of those people, that wouldn't have worked in Animal House either. Right. It was making fun of the fraternity yeah. that would look at people who are different as if they were different. Well, I guess the big issue today is that the people who criticize, are they capable of understanding the point that you just made? Because that, that's where it gets a little crazy. It's like there's no nuancing. There's no like, oh, wait a minute. They're not the losers. They're actually, yeah. they're the victim. You know, this is an important point being made here. You know, I, I would like to believe it's true. I know that listening from different uh, uh comedians um, who work colleges and things like that, mm-hmm. that it's a, a lot more challenging. Um, you know, in my day, I went to college 64 to 68, so being at rallies and protesting, you know, speakers or whatever, it was certainly part of the deal. But I think that uh, if it, I'd have to answer it in a specific example mm-hmm. because if somebody's hurt, they're hurt. Right. I would never say, oh, you shouldn't be hurt. Well, you didn't mean that. I, I remember seeing an interview with a, a, a woman from the Illini Nation outside of Chicago, or maybe it's part of, anyway, she was taking her son to a basketball game. He'd been hoping to see a college game, and she saved up her money and took her son to this you know, University of Illinois game. And they have a white kid dressed as an Indian playing Chief Illini. Mm-hmm. And she went to the head of the school. First, she wrote a letter, and and uh, they wrote back and said, "We don't mean to, you know, offend." Or and she kept writing back and trying to find people. And she's saying, "You're making fun of my people. We don't dance like that. Right. We don't look like that. Mm-hmm. That's you know." Anyway, she finally got a meeting with the dean, and he tried to explain. And she said, "Excuse me, what part of ouch?" Don't you understand? I'm telling you this hurts my mm. people. Now, I think that's true of the arts. Uh, I think you 
you can you can offend somebody, but you have to risk that, I think, in order to tell the story. But there's also an, an, a movement that goes right to your point. One parent can have a book banned from a school. Right. We're in the middle of book burning. Mm-hmm. It's called book banning, but I've read my history. Mm-hmm. I know one precedes the other. And there's an example where we've lost control. If one person can dictate to an entire school, you know, first of all, it's like an old Lenny Bruce routine when he was talking about uh, uh, homosexuals being thrown in jail. And he used to do this whole bit in which he'd say, so let me see if I got this straight. You're going to go to a bar where all these gay people are and you're going to arrest them and you're going to put them in a prison with the same sex. I don't think they think this is a bad thing. So the right, that's funny, but I but see that your was point, right? but the same thing mm-hmm. is 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 true. There's always a corollary to the to what you think is the right way. Right. Well, we had Judd Apatow on this podcast a while back, <laughs> and I had the same conversation with him about you know can you do certain things in comedy that were done thirty forty years ago, and I said you know I'm a big Richard Pryor fan, and one of my favorite bits that Pryor had done was a stuttering Chinese waiter. And I said, it's hilarious, but could could a comedian do that today? And he goes, I don't know. He goes, but I'm sure it would be very hurtful to Chinese people. And that's where we're at today is that back then you laughed and you didn't go to that place of, is somebody going to be upset about this? Whereas today, and maybe it's on steroids, but we're so acutely aware of the impact of the material potentially but that leads to the point you made about just all it takes is one person to exploit that, and now we're denied books and movies and God knows what else. Yeah, I think that's, it helps, un, at least me, it helps me understand how complicated this is. I would never say to somebody, you have no right to feel badly right. about something I've done. <clears throat> but if you see the opposite side, creating, the, they have seem to have no sense of hurt they seem to only want to inflict hurt. Right. And and so we're in this strange place. The problem is how do we end up talking together instead of, you know, right. I, I know what people who think similarly to me are going to think, but I'm trying to convince the other person to rethink, you know, and let them try and convince me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, it's really challenging. Your question's really challenging. But... People still like to laugh. Yeah. It's a different, I think with comedy, it's that's the tricky space. With drama, I think you can go to places uh, much easier than you can do comedy today. But l- I want to switch gears because we got a few romantics in the room. So I want to talk about Crossing Delancey, which when she said the hat, it was as if I was there with you when you bought it and you said you, you were. Yeah. Like, what a line. What a line. And that was... Uh, Susan Schachter wrote the play, and Joan Micklin Silver was the director. is a very good guide for dialogue. She I know, also I casts, know her daughter Claudia. Yeah, <clears throat> she also casts brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, it's a very, it's a very romantic story. Did you think you had it in you to play that kind of a role? Um. Uh, I learned early on 
if somebody thinks I'm the guy, <laughs> I'm the guy. Go along with it. You bet. And I thought what I loved about that story was, first of all, they talk about me for 20 minutes before I even show up, which is the greatest advantage you could have as right. a character. So my entrance is already interesting. Mm -hmm. And he is a character who knows who he is. That's a very powerful and attractive position, whether you're a man or a woman. A character who knows who they are. Mm -hmm. My God, it's like catnip. And that was my job. You know, I mean, I didn't, I don't, I didn't act thematically, but I read the script, so I knew what was going to happen. And I thought, one, I was flattered, Joan Micklin Silver called in June of when we shot in 87. And she said, would you like to play this part? And I read it and I said, absolutely. So <clears throat> it's a more interesting question to her. I mean, she just passed away, so you can't ask that question, but that's what I meant earlier. It's less interesting to me whether I think I can do it. I don't go to a meeting or an, an audition without thinking I couldn't do it but they're choosing from lots of people. But in that case, I thought, I just understood it. I used to work on the Lower East Side. That's where the settlement house was. So I knew every store and every pastrami sandwich and pickle, you know, I knew all, I knew the area, so I didn't have to think about that. I had a keen sense of the world, of that world. And it it's a story about very modern story, and that is, what do you do if you're fleeing from whom you are? That's the right use of the word, whom. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a character's journey. So she has to find me. I don't know it. Mm -hmm. I don't know she's the one I'm looking, I mean, I think I do, because the matchmaker showed me a picture. So I've been aware of her. But he's a mensch, and you know that was the challenge. How do you play a mensch? A mensch, by definition, is un, un self consciously a mensch. So that was the fun. But it was all there. Everything I had to do. I sell pickles. I play ha handball. I you know could wear a suit pretty well. He's got a good sense of humor, and. Uh, I uh yeah I thought I thought I I could do a good job and then the story takes over mm -hmm. and then the audience tells you whether you know I mean when the movie was released it was the year after Moonstruck which was a national success and they didn't release Crossing Delancey to a lot of states in the south and I said uh you mean they don't like watching movies about Jews down there what's well, Got to think Hollywood, <laughs> uh. Jewish Hollywood. So they thought this is a, I said to an executive, how come you didn't open it wider? And they said, well, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's um, what was the word? Jews. It was, that's not what the word he used. It was like a, a, maybe too ethnic. And I said, you mean too Jewish? He said, oh, no, no. I said, last year it was Italians, right? Moonstruck, aren't they ethnic? And he was trapped in his own <laughs> misunderstanding because people 
people like stories. They're they're you right. know I mean an idiot doesn't go because it's got a Jew in it or something, but it would have played. Mm -hmm. um, and I was surprised at how um, how how people took to it. You know I think it's a very romantic story about a person having to make a choice at a certain age in life. I mean every scene is telling Amy early. Izzy is saying to her, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. No, no, not over there. Look over there. And it's classic. That's that's what we all do. How I you know, I haven't stopped making mistakes because I'm older. If anything, they're old mistakes. But I think I was thrilled with the result. Mm -hmm. Well, the the character you played had such a quiet confidence and a self assuredness and determination. And those qualities are incredibly appealing. When you're watching this narrative play out, you know, here's this woman who thinks she's you know, uppity and she's traveling in the artistic world and he's just a pickle guy. And, but the pickle guy has more confidence, more on the ball than anybody she's hanging out with. And that's why that scene, which is so great when he comes to her reading in that small little group and, mm -hmm. and, and both of you say, let's get the hell out of here. Because... That group was just full of shit. They weren't real. And she r recognizes in that moment that that's this guy in front of me. You know, this this is something real and interesting. And he also, he doesn't let, he's he's willing to let her go her own way, but she keeps coming back to him in certain ways. And he is attracted to her, but it's hard to pursue a relationship when one of the two people is confused about going forward. I've been there. I understand what that is means because it's so powerful and time does go by so fast that's the beauty of the grandmother you know she she speaks with wisdom and she's saying to her granddaughter what are you crazy look at this guy he's got everything you need what are you looking over you know we live in a society where in a in a culture where there's 80 choices of salad dressing if you have that many choices you're going to be crippled with indecision. Right. And I think that's partly what, what the story is. And also, cross, she's, it's not just crossing Delancey, which used to be an expression when people left the neighborhood. It was kind of like, oh, you crossing Delancey? It's a big, that was a big deal. She's actually recrossing Delancey. She's left that area right. to go to the new world. And she's realized that Actually, what she's looking for is back from where she left. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you ever saw uh, Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street. Uh-huh, of course. I it's an absolutely brilliant movie. And Crossing the Lancy are the grandchildren of those people from Hester Street. You know, they, they're, you're seeing the beginning of, of uh, Jewish culture being absorbed into America. And two generations later, it's Amy and me. Mm -hmm. We're the descendants of those people who wanted to become American. We'll talk about, you know, a modern story. Immigration is like you can't have people arguing about more things than right. that. So. Another great romantic <laughs> movie, but in a different way, different kind of romance, local hero. Beautiful story. And you, you were just amazing in that film. The, the, the likability... Walking into this situation, 
where it was it would be easy for people to hate you and they just fell in love with you and you fell in love with them and you fell in love with the area and you just fell in love with the whole thing and also working with Burt Lancaster you know talk about Donald Sutherland like that must have been incredible but that movie just was such a beautiful story thank you well it's, it's actually if you look at Crossing the Lancey and Local Hero the character in Crossing the Lancey knows who he is the character in Local Hero hasn't a clue right and he's vulnerable to something that he's been protecting himself from, I think. And that's that's my analysis post-making the movie. And he falls in love. You know, he falls in love with the people. He falls in love with the town of Furness, with Scotland. And his his chest is cracked open. And it's a very sad ending um, in a romantic way. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, thanks for that. That's a good, nice compliment. But I would say they they both gave me tremendous amount of pleasure, and it was fun to see. And they weren't they weren't successful like Animal House success, mm -hmm. but they they found an audience. We we just celebrated the fortieth anniversary of, of a local hero. They're re releasing it in Britain. I've been doing Facebook interviews over there, so it's really interesting to be part of something that is going to last longer mm -hmm. what was it like working with uh lancaster well i'd been seeing burt lancaster since i was a kid with our first television i might have mentioned this to jed at a party but uh i i what's a television they said well it's furniture in which you're going to see like a movie i said okay five so they turned on the television it was a variety show i don't think it was the ed sullivan show but it was the a variety show and over the years, I learned that it was Sammy Davis Jr. doing an impression of Burt Lancaster arguing with Kirk Douglas. And my folks, who knew who all these people were, were hysterical. And I was laughing, but I was laughing because my folks were laughing. You know, laughter can be so infectious. So I said, why is this funny? So they tried to explain to me what a, a mimic does or what a ventriloquist does or what a, a voice mimic does impressionist and she said here are these and who, why are these two guys funny and said well they're big movie stars and they're in they compete for jobs anyway that was my first introduction to Burt Lancaster and then I saw him lots of movies um I went to the uh, March on Washington uh, with Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech I was 16 <clears throat> normally my folks would have gone. I don't know why they stayed home. But when I got home, they told me, you know, you made history today. And I said, well, how do you know that? And they explained from their point of view why this is a signal moment. And they mentioned who was there. Anyway, when I was making Local Hero, I said to Lancaster, were you there? Is that true? Because I told him this same story. And uh, he said, yeah, he was in, in Paris and around Paris making a movie called The Train with Paul Schofield, um, and, uh, you know, it was a World War II film, and he gathered 2,000 signatures of Americans living in and around Paris, whether they were expatriates or they were working there, and he brought it to the March on Washington to give to Martin Luther King, who used to stay with Burt Lancaster when, Le when King had to be in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Lancaster was a big ACLU guy, very political. So... I had to 
you know, my relationship to his character was to be in awe. So I was Burt Lancaster. I don't have to work too hard mm -hmm. in being in awe. So it was great. Mm -hmm. And it was at the sort of the end ish of his yeah, career. Yeah, I think right? he, he had a few more years. Maybe after that. one more film. I think you he know. did uh, uh, the baseball movie um, with Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams. Mm -hmm. Oh, I forgot he was in Yeah, I don't think he, he... He's so memorable in anything he does. Yeah. But it was... You know, there's when you meet somebody you admire like that, you you have about an hour to genuflect, and then you've then you got to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And the last thing he wanted was for me to be in awe. So it was great going eye to eye with him. That was a, a thrill. The great scene in that movie, for me, uh, was when... You are talking with Gordon because he's the innkeeper, and then mm -hmm. you guys go to meet the accountant. That's Gordon, and it's like you realize in that moment that like this, this is this small little town. Like yeah. Gordon's got like nine jobs, and it's just such a sweet portrayal of this character that he's also the guy with his sleeves rolled up, bringing you your drink and your food. Um, and I think for me that was like a moment I thought that your character started to really fall in love with that. That town. I think that's a that's a good example of, of a place where that would happen, and that's the thing. You're since you're shooting out of order, which I like to do. Mm -hmm. I don't feel any need to shoot in you know in real time order. But I knew I knew my job was was really to let all everything new catch my attention. Because that's the story. This this is the story of somebody who doesn't pay attention to somebody mm -hmm. who does, and that's a great. Uh, that's Dennis Lawson who plays the character, and I can't even pronounce his name correctly. I keep calling him Argue Hard or Argue Hard, and <laughs> and the surprise. That's the, that's probably one of the first surprises that that something is different here, and when we're in the in the uh, the fog. And we go to sleep, and right before you know, right before we go to sleep, I think I have a line that says, "Where are we?" And basically, that's a pretty good question. Where am I? When, mm -hmm. especially if you're struggling. So I would say that, yeah, that's probably a good first example where uh, Mac notices this is a little different. I don't think he's that aware yet, but if you you notice, there's people there's a guy banging on the ceiling and that was that was just stuff that was added later because i acted as if this guy was still i can't remember if it was a direction by bill for sight but the details in that movie that's where the fun is mm -hmm. in any 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 project mm -hmm. and the music was great mark knopfler, mark knopfler which yeah. a lot of people don't know about that uh in our final moments i, I got a couple other questions do you have a favorite role you've done you know i local hero probably is the best example of what i do at its best i traveled to another country every day was filled with more excitement and and the the trick for me was to let to let my natural curiosity go to work and I knew Bill, in other words, I'm being transformed by a view, by skyline, by light, by people. 
and I knew how good this director was. In order for for the audience to understand that I'm being affected, they have to see what I'm looking at. So when you see strange people and you see me, it's like the kid on the motorcycle. There's always something going on to attract my attention away from what I think life is. So that's what makes local heroes stand out. But I approach every job as if it's the best thing since cream cheese because mm. I mean I've I've done jobs where you can sort of feel, well, all right, they're not gonna they're not I don't know how this got approved, but I gotta pay the rent. <laughs> right. Kind of thing. So it's it's hard to single one out, but that's probably the best example of me at my best, I think. Is there a role that you didn't play that you've always fantasized, like in a perfect world? If, if you can pull the strings like Don Corleone or like, is there a role you looked at and like, my God, I wish I could have had that? Uh, I can't think of too many. I I certainly have looked at parts and wondered, I wonder what I would have done with that. Less out of jealousy than than curiosity. Right. I might have made a different choice. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a casting question. Somebody has to see you. That's the hardest part about show business. There's so many people to choose from. There's so many salad dressings. How do you pick the right one? And I've always thought of myself as, since I didn't study with anybody, my contribution is like value added. Mm -hmm. I, I'll add something that you didn't see in the script. And that's the way I, I mean, I'm not looking for the jewels you can't find if you've written it or directed it, but I have, I'm giving something that I find interesting and then they cut it or don't cut it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the fun, the fun part. So I go to, I just, I love what I do. I love working. I've, I've written a little bit. I've directed some. Um, the fact that I'm still doing it is always mind blowing to me mm -hmm. because it's 50 odd years now. So, and I think I have, I think my, my skills are as great, if not greater than they were, but as you get older, the parts are fewer and the competition is greater. So who knows? You know? And you've done a lot, <clears throat> obviously in film, we've talked about, you've done theater, you've done a lot in TV, Sopranos, Succession, Good Wife, One Tree Hill with my friend and partner in the candy store here, Hillary Burton. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, do you have, I know this is kind of like a, you know, who's your favorite child kind of thing, but, and also 80 different salad dressings, but do you have a preference for TV, for film, for theater, or is it all just a different high for you? Um, there's nothing more exhilarating than a play. Being with, in front of a live audience, I, there's just no way to describe it. The challenge of a movie is you can't play past the camera mm -hmm. because the, the, the alchemy happens in a different way. Mm -hmm. So in the theater, you have to make love to the audience. In the movies, you have to let the camera make love to you. It's, it's a different kind of intimacy. But I, the sound and the feel of, of doing a play and then walking outside, you know, I've done maybe a handful of plays on Broadway or off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway. 
some regional theater, but in truth, in New York, which is a, a theater center, first of all, it takes a couple hours to come down from the concentration of doing a play. But there's nothing more exciting than feeling the audience. It's like putting your finger in an electronic sock, an electric sonic. Some nights, the response is more audible. Some nights, it's quieter. But both audiences can be enjoying the same story. Mm -hmm. I've done, uh, I did, uh, 1976, I did a play by this new kid from Chicago named David Mamet. It was called Sexual Perversity in Chicago. And I did it with F. Murray Abraham and uh, uh, Jane Anderson and Gina Rogak. And I did it for eight months. And there was, if you do a play that long, you'll do three performances that will be so memorable. Um, and there was one particular night, it seemed like everything every actor did, I certainly felt that way about myself. Every breath I took, everywhere I put my finger, every pause I made, every gesture, it was just endless waves of hysteria. Mm. And the next night, it was quiet. Now, there was some laughter, but it was an attentive audience rather than a laughing audience. And F. Murray Abraham's friend, uh, the actor, great actor, James Coco, Jimmy Coco, came backstage. And the dressing rooms at the Cherry Lane Theater on Commerce Street in the Village, very small, maybe you're 5'8". And uh, Jimmy Coco came backstage to say hi to Murray, and Murray introduced me. And my memory is, at the same time Murray and I said, oh, you should have been here last night. And I don't think we got the sentence finished. And Jimmy Coco pushed us against the wall. And he said, listen, you motherfuckers, I paid good money for these <laughs> tickets, and who the hell do you think you are? Go fuck yourself. You don't need... And he just tore us apart. And that was the last day I did anything and said anything other than thank you. <laughs> because you just don't know. Right. And a smile is as loud as a laugh. You just mm -hmm. don't hear it. Mm -hmm. So that's my different story. But you can't... Well, you can. It's, I don't think it's particularly good acting, but watching... Uh, film actors, how they make things, you know, with the with the script, it's real it's a real challenge. But mm -hmm. like in Local Hero and Crossing Blancy, actually, and a couple other films I've done, the laughter is there, but it's the audience right. who tells you. Like if you do a play, you have four weeks of rehearsal and then you have a week of previews. But it's from the those first previews that the audience says, This is the laugh. This right. is the laugh. In theater, it's a lot different. So, but a good script, you, you'll see it. What's up next? Uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, I did a, a series called Shelter, created by Harlan Coben, mm -hmm. and I think it comes out in August. It's Amazon, and uh, I hope it has another season. I hope I'm in it. And I just moved, so it's mostly bins and boxes and. It's a weekday, so I still have a chance of getting a job. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave on that note. Peter, you've been extremely generous with your time. Thanks. This has been a big thrill, I know, to all of us. Uh, thank you for coming in. You're actually in the back room, which is always awesome for us. I, I, I could have gone on for another several hours, so you'll have to come back. Absolutely. be my pleasure. Thank all you right. very much for inviting me. Take care. Thank you. Bye. That's episode 84. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446 
email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. Also, follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified of uh, every time you'll be notified every time we uh, post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn in the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Peter Rieger. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>